only the best run here at the Indianapolis 500. Mario, who do you feel you'll have to beat in this year's race? People like uh, A.J. Foyt and uh, Bobby Unser, for instance. Stand by for the checkered flag. Absolutely incredible. Danny Sullivan spun in front of Mario Andretti. A.J. has done it. Beyond the Bricks with Jay Query and Mike Thompson on 93.5 and 107.5, The Fan. Hi there. Good evening to you. Spectacular, spectacular day and evening here in Indianapolis, Indiana. My name is Jay Query. Brad Huber running the board for us tonight. Mike Thompson will be joining as well. This is Beyond the Bricks. Thank you for tuning in tonight on 107.5, The Fan. Dot com after you heard Kevin Lee explaining the fact that it was a busy day at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway today. The most notable thing to happen today, aside from over 3,300 laps being turned or Tony Kanaan being the fastest of those laps, is the fact that after 4 o'clock, shortly after 4 o'clock, Santino Ferrucci, the Connecticutian, basically meaning he is a native of Connecticut, had the first significant incident of the month when the rear of his race car as he was entering turn number two skipped out on him and he basically kind of did the slide where he made contact with the turn two wall primarily the left side rear although when Santino Ferrucci got out of his high V machine for Ray Hall Letterman landing and racing he started to put weight on his left leg and then favored it a bit the AMR safety team who was there nearly instantly once he came to a stop assisted him into their vehicle and he was transported to Methodist Hospital where he was being held for observation. And, of course, the medical officials saying that he was able to put pressure on his leg. We shall see what that means in terms of Santino Ferrucci for qualifying because tomorrow is Fast Friday, which means, as Kevin was just discussing, extra boost and extra speed. And we'll see what that means in terms of getting set for qualifying coming up on Saturday and Sunday and where the speeds may be. Appreciate those of you that listened last night. We had a lot of fun last night talking about one of the legendary voices of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway in Tom Carnegie. And it has been so much fun over the course of this month to simply take a look back and profile those people who have contributed to making the Indianapolis Motor Speedway the venue that it is that is so special to all of us. And perhaps the biggest of them is the subject of our discussion tonight. And I have to kind of smirk to myself although it was not planned this way, that in the era of transistor, or or excuse me, of terrestrial radio, that is what we have come to know, making the transition to a great extent into, of course, the streaming world or the app world or whatever it may be, there is kind of an irony to those of us who are around the paddock area and maybe most fans in general to the understanding that tonight, on a night when we are on computer only, on internet only, on 93, or uh, excuse me, on 1075thefan.com, that that is the night, Mike, that we are going to talk about not just the accomplishments of, but more so the growing breakthrough transcendent stardom that became Anthony Joseph Foyt Jr. A.J. Foyt, the first four-time winner, and to an extent, and I know that this is something that can be discussed till the cows come home, but in terms of the first big commercial superstar of the Indy 500 and A.J. Foyt's relationship with Tony Holman, Donald Davidson will join us on the program to talk about that, among other things. But I love the fact, Mike, 
that to discuss AJ tonight and for people to hear it, they've got to pull up their laptop. Well, yeah, because when you think of a guy who loves laptops, AJ's the first guy to come to mind, right? <laughs> That's right. Um, you know, AJ Foyt is, and for those that don't get the joke, I guess, Mike, when you talk old school racer, not needing a computer, getting out with a wrench and banging on something to loosen up the car, you're talking about AJ Foyt. Oh, the guy who's going to get out and he's going to work on his own car. Uh, we talked, you know, we've talked a little bit about what happened in 1982. You know, is going to get out with the hammer himself, make sure that the car's right himself. Uh, yeah, totally. And when you think of, you know, old school racer, and I, I think when you think of what a racer should be, it's A.J. Foyt, right? Because he's going to do it in all these different disciplines. Uh, you know, he's going to work on his own car, as we said. I mean, if, if, if there was a picture of racer, in a dictionary, I would think the picture would be A.J. Foyt, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in terms of, you know, he could win on anything, and he did win on anything. He was not afraid of a challenge. I mean, there's no question about that. Um, but at the same time, not afraid to admit his own, at times, limit. I mean, I go back to the famous Indy 500 Open where he says, you know, listen, I know you got a bunch of brave heroes out here, but, and I'm paraphrasing, Yeah, uh, you know, greatest, I know they say the they're not afraid. Del What's that? Yeah, the greatest Delta Force Open, I think. I mean, we and I talked about this the other night, but that's that 92 Open where, you know, you got a bunch of brave heroes out here who aren't, you know, all I'll say is uh, none of them ran fast enough or none of them been hurt. That's right. He says, I know they tell you they're not scared, but that means that they're not, they haven't run fast enough or they haven't been hurt. Um, A.J. Foyt did both. Over the course of his career, he came to Indianapolis in 1958, did A.J. Foyt, in one of the great interviews afterwards where he's interviewed once his car, you know, he had a spin on lap 148 and comes out and they're interviewing him and he basically says, Mike, you know, yeah, I had a lot of fun and I look forward to coming back. And little did we know in 1958 when A.J. Foyt came back to the racetrack what was only just beginning because it is a record that most likely in my opinion mike will never be matched or surpassed i agree with that what else is interesting about that though is is he was here in 1957 as a spectator and there was an accident involving uh paul russo and basically paul russo ended up almost in his lap and in the uh you know the way he felt and and he readily admits he said you know, I'm not sure he was thinking at the time. He's like, I'm not sure AJ Foyt's tough enough for this place. And of course he certainly was tough enough, but the way he was thinking about it was, you know, uh, the fast, as fast as these guys are running and this, you know, as close up a look as he got of this act, this particular accident, he was thinking, I, I don't know if I'm tough enough for this. And, and, you know, he started off with a, in 1958 with a, a personal loss because he he got very close, and some people may not know this, but he got very close with Pat O'Connor, uh, the driver from uh, North Vernon, Indiana. And he got very close with Pat O'Connor in a short period of time, and Pat O'Connor mentored him. Pat O'Connor would, he'd, he'd follow Pat O'Connor around as a rookie in 1958, and, and uh, Pat would, you know, kind of put up his hand and, say, hey, we're, we're taking off and follow me around. And, and he would follow Pat O'Connor around the track and learn, you know, learn the different lines and learn, you know, the breaking points and think different things. And 
And unfortunately, as everyone uh, probably who listens to the show knows, you know, Pat O'Connor, you know, we tragically lost him on the first lap of the 1958 race in A.J. Foyt's rookie year. And, and, and A.J. Foyt took that really hard because he had gotten very close with Pat O'Connor. And so, uh, you know, I mean, it was a it was a tough way to, to really start your Indianapolis 500 career. But uh, obviously, you know, A.J. went on to an unbelievable, unbelievable uh, career, both here at the 500 and in his, uh, you know, championship career in, in USAC. And, of course, A.J. Foyt is so synonymous at Indy with the number four, obviously 14 first and foremost, but, you know, as the first four-time winner, but it didn't start off necessarily like he came right out of the box with that first win because, as we talked about, in year number one in 1958, he did spin and expired from the race on lap 148. He ran the race to completion and got his first top 10 finish in 1959 before a clutch knocked him out just shy of the halfway mark in 1960. And then in 1961, it happened for him the first time. Here right comes the checkered flag. Bill Vanderwater is getting set to wave it, and he is going to wave it now. He does for A.J. Foyt, winner of the Golden Anniversary 500-mile race. One of the most thrilling, surprising, exciting finishes ever. And now the checkered flag for Eddie Sachs right behind A.J. Foyt. And the funny thing about that, Mike, is to hear the call of, you know, a surprising win because, of course, over the course of his 35 years consecutively in running the Indianapolis 500, it would be nary a year to find one where anything and the thought of A.J. Foyt winning would be something other than expected, right? Yeah, I mean, now, it is it is a little bit surprising, honestly, they even said that it was would be surprising because, uh, you know, he's the national champion at the time. And so, uh, you know, it certainly, I don't think, uh, you know, you, you or, or uh, and I'm, this is not a criticism of the, of the radio call at the time at all, but you certainly wouldn't say a surprising victory by Scott Dixon, you know, uh, on race day, something like that. Uh, obviously, A.J. Foy was one of the top drivers at the time. Of course, that, that finish was, was very interesting because it looked like A.J. was going to be your winner, and then he had to make a late stop. Uh, because they didn't get all the fuel in the car. So AJ thought, you know, hey, I'm about to cruise to victory. Uh, and then I, he had to make a late stop. And, you know, he felt, I mean, basically he was crestfallen at the time because he thought, okay, it's it's all gone away. And then Eddie Sachs took over the lead. Eddie Sachs ended up, he made a late stop because the tires, you know, the courts are starting to show on his, on his tires. And again, a lot of people believe he could have maybe babied the car home, but but Sachs famously said he'd you know he'd sooner finish uh, second than be dead, and and so Sachs pitted and then gave the lead back to Foyt, and Foyt ended up winning. But uh, you know I, I was fortunate enough to get to interview AJ one time in a uh, for a, one of our radio documentaries for WIBC, and you know he said basically when they put up the sign that said late stop, he didn't even know what that meant. And then he was just totally crestfallen and thought, you know, all this work, everything has gone away. And and it ended up he still got the victory and, and was obviously thrilled about that. Now, interestingly enough, you heard Sid Collins reference the fact that A.J. Foyt's first win was the golden anniversary running of the Indianapolis 500, meaning it came 50 years to the year of the first running of the race when Ray Haroon won. And it was not long after the race when A.J. Foyt and Ray Haroon appeared on the television game show, I've Got a Secret, where they came out. And, of course, a panel of celebrities had to ask different yes-no questions about them before determining what it was 
that the two men had of note or were famous for. And while it didn't take necessarily the entirety of the show, it was very clear if you go back and watch it before they determined who A.J. Foyt was or what he had accomplished, that they then drew the connection to the fact that he was on the panel with or up there with Ray Haroon, who had won the first Indianapolis 500. But the point being, it wasn't as though immediately in 1961, A.J. Foyt walked in anywhere and was immediately recognizable. But that would not necessarily be permanent, of course, when it comes to the recognition level of A.J. Foyt. And a lot of that is because of the fact that what happened in 1961 in A.J. Foyt winning the race started to become a pattern. As a matter of fact, it didn't take long for it to happen a second time, which was, of course, in 1964. Well, nothing should happen now. And here comes the car, the Sheraton Thompson Special, the checkered flag for A.J. Foyt. With the right hand up in the air, waving to the crowd, the winner of the 1964 500-mile race. Now, the question I have, Mike, because I have hear calls a lot like this from Sid Collins, do you think he was really driving down the straightaway waving to the crowd? Uh, some of them did do that, yeah, uh, especially Lee Waller. Lee Waller had his hands in the air. And, I and see Jimmy the fist Bryan. bump, right? Yeah, Jimmy Bryan was known for that more on dirt tracks than uh, – I don't know if Jimmy Bryan did that at the at IMS, but well, Jimmy as Bryan we know, is certainly, Mike, certainly known for that. As we know from the ballad of Jimmy Bryan, when he crossed the finish line, he had both hands held high to signify yep. he'd won the big five. He did. Right? At the Hoosier 100, he had both hands for sure held high. Absolutely. That was something he was well known for. Think about, though, Foyt in 64, though. What a dominant performance, not only here at IMS, but but in the on the USAC championship trail. He won the first seven races that season in a row that he was in. I mean, isn't that amazing? The first seven races of the season that right off the bat, A.J. wins all seven of them. Well, it's part of the reason why he is the winningest driver in, you know, IndyCar records in terms of IndyCar, right? Because the wins just started coming all over the place. Once he got them, they started coming in bunches. Absolutely. And and he – he had that great partnership with George Bignati, and they had a very interesting, you know, somewhat tempestuous relationship. I'm sure Donald can expound a lot more on that than, than I would be able to do uh, justice to it. But they drifted apart for a little while, and, uh, and Bignati, Bignati ended up with uh, uh, Marshman, and then uh, they came back together and said, hey, uh, they, one day, I guess they, they basically saw each other and said, hey, is this, still, is this working for you? And they both agreed that it, that the new partnerships they were in weren't working, and you want to try it again together? Yeah. And so they got back together, and all of a sudden they started reeling off wins again. So it it was a great partnership with him and George Bignati. But uh, yeah, it, just amazing what Foyt did in the and and really one of the stories that that uh, that is told about the '64 race, just to think about the dominance of AJ Foyt. So Bobby Marshman's leading the 1964 race in the, in the Pure Oil Firebird Special. And he's leading pretty much going away. And he's got a comfortable lead. But what he wants to do is he wants to lap A.J. Foyt. It's not enough for him to just have a big lead and have a comfortable lead. But because he had finished so many times second place to A.J. Foyt, Foyt had gotten in his head a little bit. And so... He wanted to lap A.J. Foyt. And I talked to the uh, author, uh, who sadly passed away a couple years ago, 
uh, Michael Argetsinger, who wrote the book about Bobby Marshman, and he said absolutely he he wanted to lap AJ Foyt, and so he started you know he, he instead of backing off a little bit and just you know getting in a groove and and having this large lead that he had, he kept pushing, kept pushing, you know, was passing people below the white line. Well, that ended up he he ripped out the the oil plug underneath the car, dropped out of the race, and. It, the reason he did that was because he was trying to lap AJ Foyt. He wanted to get up and get around and lap AJ Foyt. And, you know, just think about it. The only guy I can think of like that is a Dale Earnhardt, you know, who's so much in the competitor's head that you see that black car behind you and, you know, he's in your head. Well, what's he going to do? Is he going to bump me out of the way or something like that? I mean, Foyt clearly was in the competitor's heads at that point. And that includes in the heads of his competitors in 1967 when he started in the fourth position and to bring it home three spots higher would mean that he was a three-time winner in Indianapolis. That's exactly what happened. Uh, here he is, number 14, and I believe the A and the J would stand for Ah Joy right at the moment. He has driven. Watch out, there's a crash down. There's the a yellow track. light. Pick it up, Jim. It's in the home stretch, Said It's down near you. Somebody in the pit can see. It appears to be Chuck Hulse in number eight. He slides and slams and screams into the pit, but they're helping him out of the car. He appears to be okay from here. We can see him about 100 yards away. Chuck Hulse being taken out of the race car on the very final lap. And the red flag is out, and they stop the race. The race is being stopped with the accident on the main stretch. Another car was bumped further up and several more on the turn. We'll have to get a further recap of that activity on the very final lap of the race. Pat Van holds the yellow and the red, and the winner of the race is obviously A.J. Foyt. We haven't had that flashed yet. A.J. Foyt has received the checkered flag. Obviously a less dramatic or more dramatic, depending on which way you want to look at it, win for A.J. Foyt, but he is now a three-time winner by 1967 and that means that the quest is underway for A.J. Foyt to try to win number four and for A.J. Foyt to do something that no man had ever before done and that also means that A.J. Foyt is catapulted to a great extent and we're going to talk to Donald Davidson about this not only into transcendent stardom on the American sports landscape but a relationship for him that becomes as strong a bond as a man can have with someone who is not his father, and that also has a direct tie to the growth of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and the Indianapolis 500. But before we take a quick recess and bring Donald in, let's listen to A.J. Foyt talking about that pursuit of becoming a four-time winner. You know, in 75, we should have won 76, but we run out of fuel twice. 77, we run out of fuel, and we got 32 seconds down, and we knew we were faster than McNaughty, and my chief mechanic, Jack Storms, which he still works for me in Houston, he says, uh, I said, they'll let us get within 10 seconds, and then they'll turn the boost up, and I'll turn my boost up. That time you could run whatever boost, but I didn't want to take a chance of breaking the motor before I got close to him. It went 10, 8, 9, you know, I was catching him on two seconds. Jack said, if you turn the boost up, I said, no. I said, they got to be in trouble, and then he blew up because... I knew Big Naughty knowing the way I raced. He wasn't going to let me get within 10 seconds of him because I kind of knew how he operated before when I'd be wet and lead. He said, back off, back off. And then I'd start picking it up. And uh, 
that's where we work good together. And that's the reason I said to Jack, which catched him pretty quick. I said, and they let me get about 10 seconds, then he has sin guard. Well, I guess he was in trouble before that. I did not know that. And Jack then thought I turned the boost up. I said, no, I'm still running the same boost. I said, they got to be in trouble. You know what yeah, I mean? So, absolutely. And then they come apart, the motor did. A.J. Foyt went through a lot to try to get that win number four in 1977. And when he did, it meant a lot, not just to A.J. Foyt, but the sport of racing and the speedway and the event itself. We'll bring on the track historian emeritus, Donald Davidson, to talk about Donald or A.J. Foyt, excuse me, and his skyrocket to stardom throughout the era of which we're talking about. And we'll do it next on Beyond the Bricks. When do you say? And 1977 was the year when that beautiful jingle graced the airwaves for Budweiser. And, of course, talking about the Indianapolis 500 in 1977 means talking about A.J. Foyt. Joining us now, he is the historian emeritus. He is still the historian of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, Donald Davidson. And, Donald, let's begin with this in talking about Foyt. We listened to the audio of his first three wins and then there is the pursuit, if you will, of number four as he goes at it. And you heard him talking about the near misses and then finally getting through and breaking through in 1977. But I want to begin with this, Donald. A.J. Foyt in terms of the stardom. You know, in the early years, obviously within racing circles, there was no denying that people knew who A.J. Foyt was. But as somebody who was a younger person at that time, when I'm talking about the, the mid-70s for A.J. Foyt, I know there were others. I know that there were other personalities and people that contributed. But I kind of get the feeling that from a driving standpoint, when you really look at the, the meteoric rise of the Indianapolis 500 as a major American event, that almost transcended racing and turned into a party-like atmosphere and ABC's wide world of sports and then transitioning into a live broadcast and people coming from all over for these massive crowds and everything else, that A.J. Foyt was as responsible for that from a driver standpoint as really anybody and that the rise of A.J. Foyt into an almost like evil Knievel status of the mid-'70s mirrored the rise in the same right of the Indianapolis 500. Do you agree with that assessment? Yeah, I mean he was um, uh, he was perceived by the others as being definitely something very very special. But I think that in 1960, uh, he had a great season. He did, he dropped out of the 500, but he had a good um, season in the 100 mile dirt track races. And I think that most people probably figured that Roger Ward was going to repeat as the national champion. And uh, Foyt was able to outpoint him in the last race. And and um, then, as it turns out, when he wins the, uh, the 1961 500, which got a lot of attention because that was the golden anniversary 500. It, it wasn't the 50th 500, but it was the 50th anniversary of the first one. And the, the fact that, um, you know, he was sort of like the superstar in the making, if you like, 
And then uh, within a matter of days, he went to New York with Ray Haroon, <laughs> who won the, uh, the 1911 500, and they were on What's My Line. And um, as uh, both, uh, you know, they were both on the same show. I believe it was What's My Line. It was, uh, I've, yeah, we were just talking about that. It was uh, I've Got a Secret was the show. Oh, I've and, Got a Secret. Okay. And then, the, thing, yeah. the thing to me that was interesting about it, as I had mentioned, Donald, is that the panel was able to kind of quickly figure out what it was that A.J. Foyt had just accomplished, but it wasn't as though when he walked out on the set, they immediately went, that's A.J. Foyt. But by 1975 or 76, A.J. Foyt walks onto any television station, and immediately people know that's A.J. Foyt. Oh, earlier than that, uh, certainly, uh, you know, golly, 1967, uh, that he wins his third 500, and then three weeks later, he and Dan Gurney share the winning car at Le Mans. And uh, so, and that I, that's the only time Foyt went. So he was one for one at Le Mans. And so certainly by that time, I think when he became a three-time winner, this is, I remember that one of the questions that I would be asked for years was, I don't know how many times people say, would say to me, do you think A.J. will, will uh, you know, he'll win his fourth and then hang it up? And... Uh, so the years came and passed, and he didn't win, and he didn't win, and then he finally does win in 1977 uh, to finally get the fourth. Years really overdue, and then he still doesn't quit. He goes on then to well, actually, he doesn't quit till 1993, as far as the 500 was concerned. Donald, you were talking about. We were talking a little bit about the. Uh, you know, Bobby Marshman basically wanting to lap Foyd and he dropped yeah. out in that in that pursuit. How how much basically was, was Foyd basically a specter to all the other drivers in that era? I mean, how much was he he was obviously the guy to beat. I mean, there were other top stars in that era, but I mean, was he really that much of a, a presence that, you know, he he was basically overshadowing all the other competitors to the point where, I mean, a guy like Bobby Marshman, who we know was a talented guy, I mean, he was obviously in Bobby's head enough that he dropped out wanting to lap A.J. Foyt. Well, uh, that, I don't really know how to answer that because when Bobby Marshman came along and then all of a sudden, you know, in, in 1964 when he was uh, so competitive and running so fast and, you know, broke down a lot, but... but um, by that time, there was, uh, you know, Roger Ward was still in the mix, although he was sort of like the the uh, the elder uh, the statesman, if you like. And in some ways, it was Foyt and Ward. On the other hand, Parnelli Jones didn't run as much, and he, he did, you know, cut back on, on dirt track racing. But, uh, you know, Parnelli was a very formidable uh, participant, so I think probably, and uh, you know, it, it's all a, a matter of opinion. But uh, and then Jim Clark, you know, on the on the few times that he ran, he was very highly regarded. So I don't know that Foyt was really the standalone, uh, except that day in and day out. And I, I'm just trying to sort of sort from. You know, like Indianapolis 500 and Milwaukee 200, to you know maybe Ducoin or even running sprint cars, and um, 
you know, many people thought that that Foyt was just, uh, you know, just the, uh, the just driven for want of a better term, and his whole makeup was. I mean, he was one of those Wilbur Shaw types where people that knew him said that you know Foyt had to be successful. And if it wasn't for automobile racing, he would have been successful at something else. Obviously, Foyt had an amazing season in 1964. He won 10 of the 13 races on the championship trail. But in 65, he gets a new challenger when Mario comes on the scene yes. full time. And obviously, one of the greatest rivalries in racing history, as far as I'm concerned, two guys who were unbelievably talented, who could yes. drive anything. And, and we were really, uh, you know, fans of that era were really blessed to see two guys of that caliber for that long. Well, that was an interesting thing then because, you know, Mario then was sort of on the scene and, uh, you know, he was, he was now, um, uh, now, now he was the next superstar and I, Foyt, um, I do. I remember at Milwaukee <laughs> when uh, there was an incident where where uh, uh, Foyt tried to go underneath Mario. I don't remember which mill. It wasn't the hundred miler. I think it might have been the one fifty. Anyway, so Foyt uh, tried to go underneath Mario, and Mario didn't give, and Foyt spun. Or did like a half a spin and kept going, I think. I mean, there was no wall contact or anything. But uh, after the race was over, there was quite a shouting match. With uh, Foyt was furious with and at Mario. And uh, Clint Brauner, who was the chief mechanic, well, Jimmy McGee was sort of like the... the uh, the, the Clint's assistant and about to be a co-chief, so I'm complicating the thing a little bit. But but uh, Clint was still trying to win the 500, and he'd had a couple of drivers extremely successful and then move on to another team, you know, like Bob Swikert left Dean Van Lines and, and, then, and then wins the 500 for John Zink. And then uh, Jimmy Bryan decides not to run dirt anymore, and then... Uh, then and, and then you know Foyt and and I don't I don't think Clint was very happy with Foyt. So anyway, so this argument was going on and and I remember Henry Banks said to Foyt because Foyt was really upset and um, and Henry Banks said, look, you tried to bluff him and he didn't bluff. Well, Clint Brauner then says, you used to be number one. And uh, that didn't go down very well. <laughs> and so for a while there, um, there was this great rivalry. Um, and and definitely there was a division with the fans. I remember when, when you would go to Milwaukee or you would go to the Hoosier 100 and with driver introduction, it just seemed like you'd boo one and cheer the other. There doesn't seem to be any middle road uh, at all. And so with Roger Ward now back off of dirt and about to stop completely, now it was, and, and with Parnelli having cut back, then for several years then it was Foyt and Mario. And uh, so that, that was a, a terrific rivalry. And uh, um, I, I think that eventually they sort of, uh, I, I, I just remember that when Mario was, was, starting to be very successful uh, just Foyt 
just didn't really care to have him around. But um, uh, but then also I saw some occasions where the two of them would get into it, and I thought, oh, my goodness, there's going to be a fight. And it just seemed that they had uh, resolved their differences. And the rivalry between A.J. Foyt and Mario Andretti, or A.J. Foyt's link to other drivers, all part of why the Indianapolis 500, as we talked about, became, you know, again, there were a million factors that went into it, but the Indianapolis 500, nobody has ever questioned, is the biggest race in the world. And there are those that would say that A.J. Foyt helped make Indianapolis, except don't try saying that to A.J. Foyt because A.J. Foyt would actually say, no, it's probably the other way around. Here is Supertex talking about Indianapolis and what it has meant to him. Well, you know, I won a lot of major races. You know, Daytona, the 24-hour Le Mans, and won uh, Sebring 12 hours, and Daytona 500, and, you know, and won Pocono four times, won California, won them all over, been fortunate enough to be lucky enough. But, you know, a lot of people think they come here, and that's what made Indianapolis. I got news for them. When you talk to my fans and people know me, they know me from one race. So A.J. Foyt didn't make Indianapolis because Indianapolis was here way before A.J. Foyt. And like I say, it's been a lot of great race traffic to go through here. Indianapolis is what put A.J. Foyt's name on the map. But A.J. Foyt in Indianapolis found a relationship and a bond with somebody that all came together for the world to see how much it meant in 1977. We'll let you know who that is and talk about that special connection with Donald Davidson, and we'll do it when we return to Beyond the Bricks. A.J. Foyt down the main straightaway. The checkered flag is out. A.J.'s hand in the air. He is the winner. A.J. Foyt at Indianapolis has won his fourth 500-mile race. Paul Page on the IMS Radio Network. When A.J. Foyt became a four-time winner of the Indianapolis 500-mile race, Jake Quarry along with Mike Thompson, Donald Davidson joining us as well tonight as we take a look back at the career and the stardom of A.J. Foyt. One note, by the way, uh, that I want to pass along. Chris Hagan of Indianapolis Fox affiliate WXIN reporting, um, and there may be others as well, but I just saw it from Chris on social media, that Santino Ferrucci has been evaluated and released from Methodist Hospital here in Indianapolis after his incident today. Donald A.J. Foyt, when he won that race in 1977, one of the iconic images from it, of course, is the ceremonial victory lap that takes place but he had with him a guest in the car and it was somebody who and you tell me did people know of the bond between aj foyt and tony holman publicly speaking before that um i i don't know that they did but that went way back way earlier than most people would think because when foyt uh first uh met Tony Holman and uh, Mrs. Holman, and Foyt always called her Ms. Holman, <laughs> but uh, he hadn't even driven in the 500 yet. Uh, they became friends with Alma George and and Miss Mary Holman. They weren't married until that April. Uh, down in, in uh, January, February, March of 1957, there was a series of midget races that they called it the Tangerine Tournament, a bunch of midget races down there, and uh, Foyt already knew Elmer through driving sprint cars, and so uh, they actually were entertained on the the, uh, the Holman yacht. And uh, so um, certainly when uh, in, I saw for myself in 1964 when Foyt uh, won for the second time at the Victory Banquet, after the, uh, you know, most people had left, 
uh, Foyt and um, uh, Mr. Holman were still sitting at the head table, uh, leaning forward to each other in very deep conversation. And I really don't know what it was, but I mean, it was more than just a, you know, the Holman president of, of the track and, and uh, Foyt as, as the most recent winner. You could tell it was much more than that. Anyway, um, I, when, when Foyt won in 77, and he pulls up into the right in front of the uh, the master control tower. By that time, if the horseshoe area, you know, the car would come down the pit lane and then hang a left right at the foot of the uh, master control tower. That he push it up the the um, the ramps up on onto the platform. And I remember that that Tony Holman was just vibrating with excitement. He was clearly very overcome and just very very animated. And here's Joe Clotier and all the others. And when, when Foyt um, got out, was getting out of the cockpit, you know, Tony was sort of trying to hug him and kiss him, even with the helmet on. And I remember at the time thinking I was concerned for, for Tony's um, well-being because he just seemed to be so overcome and so excited. I thought, oh, my goodness, you know, I hope he doesn't faint or something. I was really concerned about that. And uh, so it's almost, I, I think, and I hope I'm not saying something wrong here, I always thought that Foyt was like the son that Tony Holman never had. They were extremely close. And so, anyway, it had been a fantastic month. You know, Sneva had done the 200-mile-an-hour lap. Uh, Janet Guthrie was the first lady in the, in, in the, to, to start in the race. And now Foyt, a beautiful sunny day. Foyt was a four-time winner. And so when they uh, were done with the with the drinking of the milk and everything like that, and then it was time to take the lap around the track in the pace car, Foyt said, come with me and, and sit up on the back with me. The, the, Foyt did not have any family members. Uh, they were in the victory enclosure, but they, they were not in the car. Now, Tony would normally ride in the pace car, but he would ride shotgun, with the winner up on the back with maybe the chief mechanic or, or some type of a family member. And then for, but for whatever reason, uh, Foyt says to Tony, ride up on the back with me. And that's something that Tony Holman had never done. As I say, he would normally ride shotgun passenger uh, seat. And so when the two of them took off, it just was like one of the great moments ever because the the uh, it the, the, it took quite a while to get that lap in because people were running out on the track and not to cause a commotion or any problem it was just race fans and others that had gone out because they were just so excited that history was made we had finally after all these years had a four-time winner and as they went around and and just rolling and stopping and rolling and stopping and all the fans just surrounding the car with with just sheer joy, and uh, as I've said on other occasions, that it's uh, not only was it one of the great moments ever, that just the, you know, Foyt and Tony Holman, I mean, that's that's two of the biggest personalities, two most important people in the history of the track. And then it was uh, really uh, poignant in uh, upon reflection because Tony passed away that October and so for many people, that's the last time that they saw him. But Tony Holman, you know, would greet people, but he wasn't the, one of those people that was particularly out in front or standing first in line for anything. But uh, just the two of them together is just one of the great, 
great iconic moments in the history of the track. It was an iconic moment that took place on Sunday, May 29th of 1977. It was special for those fans who came out on the track. It was special for those who saw it on television. It was special certainly for Tony Holman. And in his own words, A.J. Foyt tells you it was special for him as well. Yes. I would have to say that would rank with all the special moments. I guess being fortunate enough to to make the race here, the race, not win, was one of the big moments of my life. And then be fortunate enough to win it the first time. And then be fortunate enough to be the four-time winner first and Mr. Holman right around Yeah, They both rank about the same. Donald, I'm going to ask you a question that I hope isn't um, put you, I, I'm not going to say put you in a difficult spot. I, it may be one that we just simply don't know the answer to, as hard as that is to believe, because I don't know that I've ever actually thought of something that you didn't know the answer to, truth be told. But in the final eight minutes here or so, have you ever maybe had a conversation with Floyd or, for that matter, at the time with Tony Holman to understand? Tony Holman was a man who obviously was around, you know, hundreds of drivers. And he met drivers. I know that you had mentioned, obviously, that A.J. Foyt had a friendship with Elmer George, who would become Tony Holman's son-in-law. But do you believe there was a specific reasoning that A.J. Foyt was the one that Tony Holman felt that connection with as opposed to others? No, I I really don't know. Other than the fact that he was friends with Elmer and Mary was, was where it started. and But beyond that, I don't know. Um, you know, Tony would go to other races. He would go to DeCoin and then obviously, you know, the sprint races at Terre Haute and so forth. No, I never really understood what it was, but they just had... Uh, had, um, you know, formed this relationship fairly early on. I mean, I don't know if Foyt may have gone to Tony with it, with some advice on how to invest his winnings. I don't know if that happened or not, but I wouldn't be surprised if it did. And, uh, no, I can't really explain it, but definitely, if you saw Tony Holman <laughs> in Victory Circle when Foyt came up to the ramps there, I mean, I had never seen Tony that excited ever. In terms of Foyt himself, Donald, you know, obviously after 1977, then there was the pursuit each and every year of, you know, can he be a five-time winner? And and obviously, you know, in 1991, he starts in the front row and he led such a colorful character in general. Um, but was he the first Indy 500 driver that truly transcended beyond the race or automobile lifestyle into becoming an American persona that was known even by people that were not gearheads? No, I, um, no, I think, I I think Wilbur Shaw was that. Wilbur Shaw was known by people that didn't know anything about racing. And uh, but just you know, Foyt during that era, look at the superstars you had running all at the same time. You know, I mentioned Mario and 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 Parnelli Jones and Jim Clark, but then you had you know Al and Bobby Unser, and you had Johnny Rutherford, and you had Gordon Johncock, and you had these these iconic names that they that won multiple times. And as somebody pointed out, you know, for a number of years, Sports Illustrated. The victory lane ceremony, or the, the, the you know the winner standing up with the with the wreath and, and holding the milk. I mean that was a standard 
front page for Sports Illustrated for several years where the winner was an automatic. I mean, it was the victory, victory circle shots. And so Foyt was all part of that. And, um, you know, you'll get arguments all kinds of ways. But by golly, when you talk about who was the most iconic driver in in the history of the Indianapolis 500, I mean, if Foyt is not number one, uh, golly, he's got to be one of the top two or three. And, uh, you know, arguably, uh, the, the, the the best known, I think, if if you were to say to people that, you know, maybe they didn't have a, a great deal of knowledge of racing, but just just passing knowledge, and say who are the great names that you remember that drove at the Indianapolis 500, and Foyt would have to be one of the first names that uh, that you would come up with, I would think. Donald, how much fun is it uh, to have? the the tribute car this year with jr hildebrand i think it's really cool that we have a, a throwback car because you know a lot of a lot of winners you know didn't make it 60 years past their victory and to, to have aj oh, yeah. here and to have aj be able to celebrate 60 years past his first victory that's yeah with a tribute in, car uh, i mean you can say that for several there was a time when racing was was so treacherous that uh you know, sometimes great drivers, you know, like Swikert and Bukovic, they they didn't have a chance. Of, you know, Jimmy Bryan, uh, to, uh, not quite as close in, in time, but they had such a short time to enjoy their their victory before they, they, you know, they were cut down. And then we were blessed to be able to have these these uh, drivers and, and others that never that didn't win that would come back year after year, year after year, and then retire pretty much on their own terms and then continue to come back. Decades later, we could still go up to Rutherford or Parnelli or Mario or whatever and just say, you know, thank you for being a hero. In fact, with that, Donald, here's a really weird question, and I've looked this up before. I believe the answer is Peter DiPaolo, but is it what driver has the record for you know, being able to see the most Indianapolis 500 years after their win, after after a victory. Uh, that's a good point. DePaulo won in 25, and then and I'm embarrassed to say that I think it was at 1980, I think, that he passed away. So I don't know that I tried to figure that out. Well, I think that's it, because Peter DePaulo would have been alive then for he passed in November of 1980, so that would be... Yeah. That he was, you know, he saw the sixty-five year mark, right? So that has to be, mm-hmm. or fit no fifty-five. Uh, if it was nineteen eighty, yeah, fifty-five. So it, it, actually, I guess it would be AJ then, would it not? Yeah, sixty years is remarkable. Yeah, and that's what's interesting to me about AJ is that the first victory. Correct. Uh, yes, probably, but then you know, Parnelli was Parnelli's only victory um and there's another one that should have won three or four but uh you know Foyt 60 1961 and then Parnelli's 1963 and so uh he would be I think would be second in terms of um numbers of well I, I don't know how you put yeah it. number of races seen after their initial yeah, victory yes yeah. yes what were you going to say Mike 
No, I just think what's fascinating is uh, a few years ago they they made a special Borg Warner Trophy for for the drivers who who saw 50 years after their their first victory, right? So AJ got his 10 years ago already, you know, and that that just is an amazing stat to me is that that you know now we're on 60 years for for AJ's first victory already. And you know there were those drivers over the course of history that were oh so close. To getting a baby Borg at some point, but we're not able to get one, and that is the subject of tomorrow night's Beyond the Bricks, as we will discuss that at 8 o'clock tomorrow night. Drivers that came oh so close of the 80s will do so for the 90s coming up on Carb Day, but tomorrow night, that's the subject matter. Donald, a pleasure. Look forward to seeing you trackside, and we got a big weekend coming up with Fast Friday and qualifying. All new stats that will be accumulated that we can talk about in the future, but appreciate your contribution as always tonight, Donald. Thank you. I hope I didn't monopolize it too much. <laughs> Absolutely not. Donald Davidson, the historian emeritus of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Mike Thompson as well. Tomorrow night, 8 o'clock. Thank you to Brad Huber for running the board. We'll talk, running the board here tonight. We'll talk tomorrow night at 8 o'clock about near misses of the 80s, the subject matter on Beyond the Bricks.